Good morning. It is an honour to be here with you and to share God's word with you. And uh, as I'm uh, standing here, I've got plenty of thoughts going through my mind at the moment. Um, never had a friend who's, who had taken their life before. Um, and as we walked in this morning, we are talking about um, this life is a life of contrast. We were at a 21st birthday party last night. In the middle of that party, we get news that a friend who I'd grown up with from about eight years of age took his life. This world is a, a difficult place. And there's a war that's being raged for the souls of men. We don't see it often enough. There's too much suffering and too much, um, too much sin in this world. And our job is to shine some light, is to reflect the light that God has put into our hearts. And sometimes it's a very difficult job because oftentimes people don't want to see the light. The light makes life difficult for them because it's when you're so used to living in the darkness, when someone comes along and shines a light and exposes your life for what it is, um, it's much easier to go back into the darkness. For a person to take their life who says they believe in God, They must be at a point where they must believe that God is not trustworthy, that it's not worth to turn back to him. And the devil must take some particular joy out of being able to convince someone or get to a stage or to a point where it's better for them to give up everything and to turn to the God who loves them more than they'll ever understand. I can't understand it, to be honest with you. And I, I think it's going to be quite a while before um, I get through this. <clears throat> this morning's passage is about the gospel and the light of the gospel. And it, it, all, it also is a story of contrasts. And today we're going to be looking at contrasting motives, what motivates God and what generally motivates man. And the word of God is always very clear to us and God does a, has done a wonderful job of putting it together. So we're going to read a small passage this morning. You've read, we've read part of it this morning and we're looking at John chapter 3 verse 16 to 21. John chapter 3 verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. Now, I understand that um, uh, it is brought or delivered a a couple of sermons, is that right, about what is the gospel? And this is essentially a continuation of that. And the Lord was teaching Nicodemus, who was meant to be a spiritual leader of his time, some very valuable truths about what it means to be saved and what being born again meant. Nicodemus, I think, struggled with that whole idea. But today we're looking at contrasting motives. 
what was it in God's heart that actually caused him to send his only begotten son into this world to save people like us? People who did not deserve it and still do not, still do not deserve it. Don't ever think in your mind, if you are saved today, that somehow you are more deserving of that salvation or of any grace that he would give you each and every day to sustain you. There is nothing good in us that would commend us to God's goodness or that would cause us to have some sort of merit in front of God. Because even the righteousness we have now is still filthy before God. And the only goodness that we have in us, and this will come to light in this particular passage, is what God has put in us. So today God reveals a bit of his heart. You know, before a prosecution can win a, a case against someone who they think is guilty or to obtain a guilty verdict, they need essentially three things to be established. They need the means to be able to commit the crime. They need the motive to do the crime. And then they also need the opportunity. If they can prove those three things that all point to one individual then they have a very good opportunity of actually obtaining that guilty verdict. God has made it all too clear that he's guilty. Guilty of choosing to save mankind. And he definitely had the means. The Bible says that he had all the resources to do it. In fact, he was the only one who could. If you wanted to point the finger at who was the one or who could be the one to save mankind, there is only one in all of existence who has the means to be able to do it. Everyone else falls short. That's why when people argue that Jesus is not God, they are kidding themselves. If Jesus was an angel or if Jesus was just some sort of prophet, he would not have the means to be able to do that. But the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, he was literally God in the flesh, he had the means to do it. In fact, he had so much means that he told the world beforehand that he would do it. He predicted it. And, he, and God himself, who wrote these words that we hold in our hands today, predicted that he would send the Messiah, the Anointed One. And he himself would be called the Everlasting did God have the opportunity to do it? Of course he did. In fact, he already told us in advance when this opportunity would arise. You see, for a criminal to be able to break into a place like this, they probably have to wait till it gets dark. They'll have to find a place to get in through. They may have a, a way of actually putting off the alarm and all these things have to sort of come together to actually make the thing happen. God told us way ahead of time when he was going to do this thing and the circumstances in which they were going to happen. God told us that there would be a town called Bethlehem and in this town this Messiah would be born. He also said that one of the circumstances had to be that he would have to be born of a virgin. He also says that in that particular time that there would be a kingdom in this world that had developed a method of killing people that would cause a person to be lifted up from the ground and have their hands and their feet pierced. There weren't too many um, civilizations around that had that means of, of dealing with criminals, except for the Romans. You see, so the Romans at that time were another circumstance that had to be in place. The Bible we have in our hands, or well, New Testament at least, is a translation of the Greek. The other, the other 
thing that God made sure happened was that the whole world spoke one language and that communication would be easy. And the Romans made sure that the roads were built and they were fairly safe. The Greeks made Alexander the Great made, made Alexander the Great made sure that the whole of the known world spoke one language, and that was Greek. And that's why we have the Greek in our hands. It also says that he would grow up in a place called Nazareth, which is a very small, insignificant town at that time. There were so many things that, that God said, if I'm going to commit this particular thing, if I'm going to do this thing, this are all the circumstances that have to line up. Even to the point where he had to have a forerunner who went before him, which would be his cousin, who was born also in miraculous fashion, and that would be John the Baptist. So God had the means. God had the opportunity. And now in these, in these words, God reveals his motive. Motive for the, single, the greatest single accomplishment ever achieved by any man in the history of the world up to that point and ever since. So what's, what does motive mean? Well, motive is essentially the reason why you do something. That's where we get the word motivation from. People have motivations to do certain things. So it's your rationale. It's the grounds for why you do things, the cause, the basis. And prosecutors often are able to establish means. They often are able to establish um, opportunity. But motive is a little bit, bit more difficult because motive is often subjective. We're trying to delve into a person's heart and mind to understand why they would do such a thing. So it's one of the hardest things to actually ascertain. The beautiful thing about God is that he's so open. He's so transparent. God doesn't hide anything. He doesn't have to. People hide things. People are the ones who, who have their skeletons in closets, closets and, and they hide the things they do from each other and they think that they can hide things from God as well. God doesn't have any reason to hide. He just tells us exactly as it is. And today he's told us that he loved this world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it's because God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but that through him the world might be saved. My friend failed to see that point. He took his life because he thought that God was condemning him and that there was no turning back. And Jesus had just made a statement beforehand in verse 15 where he says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is what you call an open invitation. Whosoever. God wants everyone to be saved. God's desire is that all would come to him and all would take advantage of this solution that he's provided for us. And all he asks for saving you and me, for giving us an eternal life with him, a life that never ends, is that we would simply trust him. We would simply trust him. Nothing more. Now, the average Joe would rightfully ask this question. Why would he do such a thing? Why would you give up the thing that was closest to you and that you valued the most for something that obviously wasn't as valuable. Did you get that? He exchanged his son for us. He allowed his son to go through the suffering for us. And there is no comparison, regardless of how many people there are in the world, whether there were 300 million or 100 million or 6 or 7 billion as there are now, there would still be no comparison. Yet God decided to 
give up the thing that, that was closest to his own heart for the thing that he wanted to win. So someone else would say, why would he do such a thing? What, what would motivate him? I mean, what's he getting from this? What's he, what's he tr- aiming to get? Now, if you're buying a used car from a, a, a used car dealer and he, and he had a, a Mercedes-Benz in his, in his lot and it was a 2015 model, just last year's, and you asked him, how much for that car over there? And he said, look, I'll give it to you for $10,000. You'd rightfully ask, why would you do that? Because you can get a lot more for that car. What's wrong with the car? Is there an engine in it? Is there something completely wrong with it? Has it been, has it been in an accident? where you can't even steer it anymore because to sell a car that expensive that has obvious value well and above, um, you'd be right to ask a question. But here's God saying, look, I've got a gift for you. And this is what it cost me, but I'm going to give it to you free of charge. Hang on. What's the catch? What's going on with this? When Jesus says to believe in him, he isn't just saying to acknowledge that there existed a figure some 2,000 years ago who was born the son of a carpenter, who was the Messiah, who died and rose on the third day. When Jesus says that eternal life is gained by believing in him, it means that you actually put all your trust in him. So you wouldn't trust necessarily a used car salesman who was selling you a dodgy car. But Jesus is saying, I'll tell you what, I don't, I'm not asking you for $10,000 here. I'm not asking you to, to, to hand over money, which most people would find difficult to hand over as well. They, they want to make sure they were, they were getting a, a proper deal for their... But he's saying, I want you to trust your soul to me. That's who I am. And if you want this gift, you need to hand over your soul to me to take care of. And he says that if you come to me, to believe in me means to believe in who I am. To believe the offer that I'm making you is actually coming from the means, the opportunity, and from a sincere and honest heart. When Jesus asks us to believe in him, this belief is not just a mental thing. It's not just an, a, a, an ascent to um, a, an historical fact. When Jesus asks us to believe in him, he's asking us to put all of our hope, our confidence, our reliance, our dependence, our every faith in him because he is absolutely and positively trustworthy. He's perfectly trustworthy because he is the Almighty, the only begotten Son of God. But for many people in this world, this is not an automatic pass. You'd think that if God came to you and said, this is what I've got for you. So if he showed himself in front of them, that you'd say, yes, I trust you because you're God. You don't lie. But yet for many people in this world, the devil has done such an extraordinary job deceiving them that they can't trust God in fact many people can't bring themselves to trust God with their lives because they question his character it's not that they don't believe in God in fact the majority of people in this world definitely believe in God deep down they know it deep down they see it the Bible says the heavens declare his handiwork they know it but they can't bring themselves to trust him. There are many people in this world who look at their circumstances and instead of blaming their decisions or 
the cruelty in this world or sin or the dishonesty of men or the bitterness in people's hearts or the injustices that humans perpetrate on other humans, when they see things go bad, who do they blame? God. Extraordinary. Yet many of those same people who blame God say they don't even believe in God. Yet when they suffer personal tragedy in their lives, they say, God did this to me. And then they use it as an excuse to hate him even more. If there's any motive that the devil has, it's that he hates God. He hates him with a passion and he covets his position. He wants to be where God is. So therefore he has to hate him. He hates his authority. He hates what he stands for. He hates the people that have put their trust in him. And if there's any method that he consistently uses to try to achieve this and to rob God of his glory, it's to slander God's character and to make him look untrustworthy. That's his job. That's what he does. He spends most of his time trying to convince people that God is not trustworthy. He can't be trusted. He's a liar. And by doing that, by trying to cut God down, he thinks he can actually build himself up. If he throws enough mud at God, he thinks that people will refuse to worship him. And they do. And he's been doing it from the beginning. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3 with me. Because what we see today is a continuation of the same sorry method that he's been using from the beginning and people haven't picked up on it. Notice what he says in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. He says... Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You know, the devil continues what he began from the beginning. And that's to cause, start off by causing a little bit of confusion in someone's mind. Did God really say that? When he questions God's, questions God's word, he's actually planting a seed of doubt in people's minds. But then look what happens in verse 4 and 5. It says, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So he starts off, by causing some doubt in people's minds about what God was saying. And then eventually what he does, he swings it around to say, he didn't say that. And then what's the ultimate aim? To tell them he's not trustworthy. He's holding out on you. He doesn't love you. Because if he loved you, he'd let you have that fruit and, if you had, and he knows that the day you had that fruit, you're going to be like him. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to have all the power. He doesn't want you to have all that wisdom and knowledge. So he's holding out on you. So the devil, in attempting to break the trust between God and man, makes God out to be a liar and a deceiver. The thing he is. In this way, when men who are already laden with sin might consider turning to God, the devil reminds them that God is not trustworthy, he doesn't love you. See, if you're laden with sin and guilt, are you going to go to someone who you doubt actually wants the best for you? Will you confess your heart? Will you confess the things that you've got deepest down in your soul? To someone you don't trust, you won't. So the devil continually reminds people, continually tells people that God's not trustworthy. He's not in it for your good. 
He tells us that, you, that God's the last one that you should be going to because you're a sinner. And if he gets his hands on you, he's going to want to kill you. God's not in it to make your life joyful. He's a killjoy. He doesn't want you to be happy. And these are complete lies. And they're designed to rob God of his glory and to keep you and me from being reconciled back to God. You see, even the Christian falls into this trap. His own children. Now, he does a very good job of blinding the the minds of those who are laden with sin and are considering turning to God. But even his children, he manages at certain times to say, just hide a little bit more. You know, you got this problem? Just hide. Don't, don't confess it to him. So his aim always is to stop us having a relationship with God because it's the most dangerous thing to him. So John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus clearly explains the motivation for why God would do such a thing. For what he said in verse 15, he did it because he loves. He loves mankind particularly. And he does not want mankind and every individual within mankind to end up in hell with the devil and his angels. The devil and his angels are already destined to go there. There's no way out for him, no way out for them. And God doesn't want the people that he created in his own image to end up there with them, with them as well. So God's desire is love, to save them. Love is the motivating factor here. That's the reason he, he offers this unbelievable gift that whosoever believes in Jesus will not die eternally, but will receive eternal life with God forever. And that word so is so important. And you might say so. But that so is so important. Because that so tells us the magnitude of his love. He could have simply said God loves the world and he sent his son. But he actually says God so loved the world. That, that so, if we were to use the common parlance today, you'd say God loved the world so much. That means the same thing. The love of God for us was so great that he was willing to give up the very thing that was closer to his own heart, his own beloved son. That's how much he loved. The the word gave doesn't simply mean that he gave as a gift. and It actually means that he gave him up to death as a ransom to win back mankind. And that's what it means when Jesus says that he had to be lifted up. Lifted up doesn't mean that he'd be glorified. The lifted up means that he'd be lifted up from the ground on a cross. That demonstrated what type of love that God was offering. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son to us. And if giving is used as a simple measure of the level of love, because one of the, one of the barometers of love is how much you actually give real love is sacrificial in its giving it means you you give of what costs you so if we use god's giving as a barometer as a level for how much that love actually meant on the scale the gift shows us that the love of god was way off the charts In fact, there's no chart that we have that can actually measure that type of love. And then he repeats the verse and the offer that was in verse 15. He says, whosoever will. To emphasise and clarify the point even further, if there were any doubts as to the purpose of Jesus' mission, it was not to judge the world to condemn it, but to save it. Jesus came to save, and he is still saving now. Oh, there'll be a day when the saving will be over. When the time will end, 
the doors will close and Jesus will return. But that's not today. Today is still a day of salvation. And today is the same message that we preach. The Bible says in verse 12 and 13 of John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And he proved it. And he did it. Jesus came as a rescuer, not a judge. He came to rescue us. He knew very well what the law, what the law had already done. The law was already a very good judge. It judged perfectly. It was the perfect standard sitting in front of us. And the more we looked at it, the more we thought, I'm gone. I'm finished. I can't measure up to this standard. Because the standard was God's own standard. And so we were left in a, in a, in a particular difficult situation. The more you looked at the law, the more it actually condemned you. The more you tried, the more you realised you couldn't match it. We stood condemned already. And no matter what we tried, we couldn't liberate ourselves. We couldn't free ourselves. We needed someone stronger than us. We needed someone better than us to come and save us. And any rescuer must be in a stronger position than the person they're rescuing, right? We had an illustration. Um, we were speaking about salvation the other night with the teens group. And I gave this illustration, which I think they left an indelible mark in their heads. And it's a bit like this. Everyone in this world is living essentially in a prison cell. And that prison cell has been created by their own sin and the devil's locked the key. He's got the key and he's locked the door. But the devil not only wants to keep a person in prison their whole life, he wants to kill them as well. Because the devil hates mankind. Whenever he looks at mankind, he still sees God's image. He can't stand them. So the more he can kill, the more he gets gratification from it. So not only does he keep a person in prison their whole life, and they don't even know it. You see, everyone is living in a cage. That's why the Bible says that the only free people in this world are the ones who have been freed by Jesus. They're the ones who actually experience true liberty. So everyone's stuck in a cage. But not only are they stuck in a cage, the devil has actually lit a fire in there as well. So you're in a room, there's a door, there's only one exit. And the devil has lit a fire because he wants to kill you. And that fire is taking shape. It's growing. And the smoke rises. So the more a person goes on, the more they're actually starting to suffocate. The more they're being blinded by the smoke, the, f the flames are getting higher and higher. It's getting hotter. And then it comes a knock at the door. Is anyone in there? And most people are too scared to answer. So there's another knock on the door. Anyone in there? And you might say, yes. Do you want me to come in and save you? And most people think about that. Most people take their time thinking whether they should be saved or not. They know they're going to hell. They know that there's no chance for them. They're already on their knees because the, the air is getting, is getting pretty bad. But they think about it. And there are some who say, yes, come and save me. And the picture of, that I gave to the, young, the, the teens was that Jesus is somehow like a fireman. And he busts that door in. And while you don't know, you can't see where you're going, he comes into that room and he lifts you up and he takes you out. Couldn't save yourself. You couldn't see where you were going. You had no opportunity of getting out. And there was someone intent on killing you. It all it took was to say, yes, save me. I'll trust you to save me. That's what Jesus came to do. And that's what he's still doing. And that's the one that we need to keep pointing people to and saying, answer. 
Because if he's knocking now, answer, he'll come in. There's no door that's big enough or that to stop him. There is no door too thick. There is no flames too high. There is no position you can be in where he can't rescue you. Even if you're at your last breath of life and you're about to pass out and die, he can still save you with your last breath. Ever heard this one? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. He is strong. And we should be thankful that he's strong. Because we're not. So he tells us in verse 18, And he that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now the situation is made even more clearer. There are only two types of people in this world. Those who have trusted in Jesus, have put their trust in him and said, Yeah, save me, because I can't save myself. And I know you're stronger. Who no longer stand condemned for their sin under the law. And then there are the rest. Who have chosen not to call him. Who have chosen not to trust him. Who were already condemned. No special court that needs to be convened. They're already condemned, the Bible says, because they haven't put their faith and their trust in the name of the only one who can save them. These verses, these simple verses, tells us, teach us two very vital and important truths. That people automatically go to hell when they die if they haven't put their faith in Jesus. doesn't have to be a final judgment to end up in hell. Some have argued that it's not fair that God sends people to hell without some sort of a final arbitration and judgment. No. They're not sleeping. There's no sleep. They're not going to be waking up sometime later and then they're going to be... They're in hell right now. Scripture teaches that anyone who is not saved in Christ is already condemned as a sinner. God doesn't have to actually go through any court because you haven't actually got the pass to go up to heaven. So there's only one other place that you're fit for. You see, there's only two places you can be fit for. You're either fit for hell or you're fit for heaven. You're either a citizen of this earth, in which case you've already got the passport to hell, or you've been taken out of us as a citizen of this world and you've been given a passport to heaven or made a citizen of heaven, in which case when judgment pours down on this world, you're no, longer, you're no longer in it. You're no part of it. And the Bible makes it clear that when a person accepts Christ as their saviour, they are no longer citizens of this world. We are actually strangers. The Bible says we are pilgrims, only travelling through. And the most prestigious position that we hold in this world are as ambassadors. Ambassadors. I love that word. We represent another kingdom. We represent another country. And so the way we conduct ourselves here should be as representatives of that country. But who are we representing to? We're representing two people who are citizens of this world and who will one day be judged, whether they die today or whether, they are, whether the Lord comes back and judges this world with fire. One day they will be judged. So our job is to share this message with them. And the second thing it teaches is that Jesus is the only means of salvation. The only one. There is no other way around him. Most rely on that verse that says, you know, no man cometh to the Father but by me. That's a very good verse that we use to say, well, no, there's no other religion. There's no other way. Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. But this verse also clearly teaches exactly the same thing. That unless you've had your guilty verdict overturned by Jesus, you are not going to heaven regardless of whatever system or theology or philosophy or, or, um, or good works you think you're following, unless you have turned to Christ, you will not be going to heaven. Jesus is the only way. Look at verse 19 to 21. It says, and this is the condemnation. 
that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, but neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Now we see the motivation of another kind. We see the contrasting motivation. And as I told you before, life, this life is a life of contrast. While we were crying last night outside and were praying together, inside they were singing happy birthday. It was extraordinary. It was an extraordinary feeling that there was celebration going on at the same time that we were crying out to God. And this is the contrast that we see between God's motivation, which is purely love for mankind, and man's motivation. So what's man's motivation? What's, what's the motivation of man? It says the condemnation, the guilty verdict, is because God, despite God sending his son to save mankind from the consequence of his sin, man doesn't want to be saved. He didn't want to be saved. He does not want to be saved. Why? Because they love darkness. They love darkness. And they believe they can hide in that darkness. The darkness is good. Because the darkness means you can do anything you like and no one sees what you're doing. Not even God can see it, apparently. Yet they don't realise there is no place in this universe that God doesn't see. This is because the darkness is the natural environment in which men live today. It's their natural environment. It's the place where the carnal flesh lives. It breathes that air. It loves that air. And unless God puts a new nature or new spirit within you, that's your natural habitation. It's a bit like a fish jumping out of water. Unless God changes the nature of the very fish, if it tries to jump out of the water onto land, it won't survive. So naturally, man doesn't want to come out of the water if they're a fish. God has to change you from the inside and make you a completely new creature. A new creature. The Bible tells us that we are new, a new creation of God, a new creature. Why, God? Why do you have to... You know why? Because that animal we were before, that being we were before, is not fit for heaven. It cannot breathe heaven's air. It's not made for it. So God had to make a whole new one of us. And we look at ourselves and we say, well, I don't see anything new. Yet within you already is planted the seed of his character. And God wants us to, to feed that. He wants us to help that to grow. Because within us there is a second nature, a new creature, that is the one that remains eternal. The other one is a goner now. It's been condemned. It's been hung on the cross with Christ. And God has now made us a new creature, fit for heaven, but also able to live under the water with the rest of the fish. So even though they now they know the light, their people know the light, and maybe they've seen the light, it says they hate the light. Because if they come to the light, all of a sudden, all their, everything becomes visible. All the, all the, 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 you know, sometimes you look at yourself in the mirror, and as you get older, you look at yourself in the mirror, and you're not the same, you don't look the same way when you were young. And you, and you think, okay. But when someone looks at themselves in the mirror of God's word and God's light, it's a nasty picture. It's terrible. And you're confronted with this, with this thing that says, there's nothing good there. And most people look at that and they say, nah, that's enough of the light for me. I'm going back to the darkness. I don't want to see that. I want to pretend I didn't see it. So they go back to what they are comfortable with. They go back to where they find pleasure and they don't want to be admonished or accept the reproof 
for who they are and what they are. If there's one thing I've learned about men in general, is that they hate to be told that they're wrong. Have you ever noticed that? People do not... How often do people say, sorry, I was wrong? Politicians ever say they're wrong? And people in courts... You know, Sometimes you watch these, these shows and there are people in courts and no one ever admits they're wrong in court, do they? They're both there arguing and someone may even be the, you know, but they don't say, oh, sorry, I was wrong. Maybe if they, if they realise they've been caught and there's no way out of it and they're hoping for a plea bargain, uh, maybe they will. But man generally hates to be told that he's wrong or to ever admit to error because if they have to apologise, it means they have to lower themselves. And this we call repentance. And it's naturally a part of coming to the light. You see, when you come to the light, and all of a sudden all your deeds are exposed, and you see the Lord and he says, well, I'm offering you the solution. Look at yourself. You can't clean yourself. I need to clean you. What are you going to do? You have to make a decision at a point, at that particular point, whether you stay in the light or whether you say, thanks for the offer, I'm heading back the other way. I'm heading back to what I knew before. Or you can stay in the light and say, God, I don't like what I see. And I know I can't clean this business off me. And I hate it. What you've shown me, I don't like. I need you to clean me. So a person who comes to the light naturally repents of their sin because they're essentially saying I need you to change me I need you I want to live in the light I don't want to live in the darkness anymore I want to live in your presence and I know I can only live in your presence if you clean me repentance is a natural part of coming to the light and staying in the light John 3.21 says, But he that doeth truth cometh to the light. He does. He cometh to the light. That his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. Isn't that interesting? This verse is very, very interesting. And this is going to be the last verse that we're looking at. It says that he that doeth truth. It doesn't say he that doeth good works. Have you noticed that? It doesn't say he that doeth you know, works and, and good things and, you know, and follows commandments and laws. It doesn't say that. It says he that doeth truth cometh to the light. No good deeds, no good works, but truth. But how does one do truth? How do you do truth? You can know truth. Well, it's the same way Paul and Silas answered the Philippian jailer. When he asked this question, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Notice, what must I do to be saved? He was, like everyone else in this world, expecting to have to do something to earn it. And so their response to him was, you want to do something? You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Turn to John chapter 6 verse 27 with me. Just so we're clear that Jesus was preaching the same gospel as Paul and John and everyone else that are his disciples. Jesus had finished presenting some, some teaching to the people. And it says in John chapter 6, verse 27, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him that him hath God the Father sealed. They said unto him, uh, Then said they unto him, What shall we do? That we might work the works of God. Like that? Same sort of question as the, uh, the Philippian jailer. What shall we do? So Jesus had just told them, labour for meat. Isn't labour work? It's work, isn't it? Labour for meat that endureth to eternal life. So naturally they asked, well, what, what type of labouring do we have to do? What type of work do we have to do to inherit this eternal life? What type of works do we have to do to work the works of God so that God will then accept those works and... Then we'll get into heaven. So Jesus answered in verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. Nothing more, nothing less. 
don't have to work your way to heaven. You simply believe. The work that God wants us to do and the thing he wants us to expend our energy in and to focus on is to believe in him. This is the good news of the gospel. All the doing has been done already. It's been done. Everything's been done. Our doing is to receive by faith, to simply believe. So then it says in verse 21, But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. So he that doeth truth, the one that has put their faith in Christ, the one that believes in Jesus and has accepted the solution that he has for their eternal soul. It says, comes to the light that his deeds may be made manifest. What's the motivation for coming to the light? That by doing truth, that by believing in Jesus, that the deeds that you do as a result of believing in Jesus will be open for everyone to see. No hiding anymore in the darkness. We do everything out in the open. There's no point to hide. But what we also want to do is to, to show by the deeds that we do, we want to show this world that the deeds that we do don't come from us. They come from God himself. Now that word wrought is an interesting word. And it's the same word that's used in Psalm 139.14. It says, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Wrought means to create, to produce, to fashion and to form. A person living in the light is happy to have all these deeds out in the open. No need to hide. No need to have skeletons in the closet. You can live your life in complete openness. That's what real freedom is, isn't it? So it says that we can live lives in the light where the deeds that we do are obvious to people in the darkness that they're actually not ours, but they're God's. God wrought them in us. And that fits perfectly with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We simply need to be walking. And guess what? God's already lined up the works and if we simply walk in the truth and walk in the light, the Bible says you're gonna, you can't but help but stumble upon all these works. And God's going to do them in your life. I'm not sure about you guys, but there are times in my life when I seem to be keenly aware of what the Spirit's doing around me. I wish that was true all the time, but it's not. And there are some times I, I, I look and I say, God, I missed that opportunity because I was too distracted by something else. All my life wasn't right with him. But God has already preordained all the works that we would do. You know why? Because in the end, he gets all the glory for every one of them. You see, there are, there are works which will endure forever. And they're the works that he's prepared for us. And there are works that we think will endure forever, but they're building with wood, hay and stubble. And eventually just they'll, they'll be burned. So all the good things that people do in this world that think one day that you know, they're building up this wonderful mansion and you know, they're going to show God, look what a wonderful thing that I did. And God says, but that wasn't the works that I prepared for you. They're not my works. They're your works. They won't last. So who gets the glory? He does. For the things that we do, he must. Because all good comes from him. Especially the good that's found in us. So what does it mean to do the truth? It means to follow Jesus Christ. It means to believe with all of your heart and trust him with all of your soul. Is to love him with all of your might and to put him first in every part of your life. That's what it means to do the truth. Someone can know the truth but never live it. Someone can know the truth and never meet him. It's a bit like receiving a Christmas present but never unwrapping it. It's a bit like saying you believe in Jesus, but never ever are influenced in your choices for him. 
It's a difference between being a Bible scholar and being a believer. You can be the greatest Bible scholar in the world. You can know everything about the Bible and still not know Christ. Truth not done in the heart is not worth knowing. It's the type of truth that only fills the head and makes one proud about who they are. So this is my challenge to you today and I'll leave you with these thoughts. Do you know the truth? Because you've got a name. And if you know the truth, have you done the truth? Have you actually received the truth and lived the truth? And if you haven't, will you do it? There's no point waiting. Because every day that's, that's, you don't choose that truth, that you don't choose to come to the light and live in the light, is a day that's lost in all of eternity and you can't get it back. And guess what? We have a limited number of days ahead of us. Every one of us, as young as you are, or as old as you are, you only have a, number, a limited number of days. And those days you will commit to eternity. And you will bring with you one way or the other. The teens were a little bit, I think, concerned about the fact that the Bible teaches that everyone will be judged in the end. Even Christians will be judged. You see, from the moment that we put our faith in Christ, God's given us this much time. And he's put all the works before us to do. He wants us to grow. And if we choose not to, and that's our choice, what we take between the moment we're saved to the moment we're either taken up in rapture or the moment we pass away is what we bring with us into eternity. Do you understand that? And that's what we'll be judged on. Whether we've done it, good or bad, we take with us in eternity. And the obvious question that goes with that is, are there levels in heaven? So for the person who spends their whole life fritting it away with things of this world, and when they come before the throne of Christ and they have nothing to show for the works that God has given them as a gift already beforehand. And yet there's someone else who comes and has devoted their whole life and maybe been a missionary or, or even died in the cause of Christ. Do you honestly think that those two people will spend the rest of their eternity in the same way? If the Bible teaches us that God will not forget a glass of water that you give to one of his disciples for the sake of them being a disciple... And you gave one glass. And if that's the only thing that you gave, and God says, I won't, won't forget that, what about the one who gave thousands of glasses for the sake of Christ? Do you think you will receive the same as them? No. The Bible clearly tells us that there are those who have committed their lives to him who will receive rewards in heaven. The way we spend the rest of our eternity... Yes, we'll all be saved. But the Bible teaches that there are some who get into heaven where only the foundation is left. The whole edifice, the whole house is burnt and nothing left of it. And it says they'll be saved by the skin of their teeth. Are you happy with that? Would you be happy with that? Because it, I wouldn't be happy with that. I wouldn't be happy spending the rest of my eternity with nothing to show for the time that I've had here. I would rather make sure that when I come before my saviour, that I say, Lord, this is what I did with the works that you gave me, with the life that you gave me, with the time that you gave me and the grace that you gave me. Because that's what I want to give him the glory with. Do a study on it if you haven't done so already. My challenge to you today is, if you haven't come to the light, come to the light. Trust God. He is absolutely trustworthy. He will never, ever let you down. doesn't matter where you are in, in your life at this, at this point, at this stage. doesn't matter what sins you've done. doesn't matter where, what struggles you go through. You know something? There's no better place to be than the arms of Jesus, regardless of where you are or who you are. Jesus said to the Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word... 
then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Really knowing the truth means to choose it, to embrace it, to love it, to cherish it. Trusting in Jesus is what the scriptures are all about. It's what the devil tried to destroy at the beginning. God is trying to restore now through his son. And he's saying, trust me with everything. God bless you. Thank you.